Hello and welcome to Twin Peaks The Return, a season three podcast for our discussion of part 14 of the series. I'm Andy Hazel. I am the dreamer. Nah, just Josh and it's Hayley Inch. How are you going? Hey, Hayley. Hi. <laughs> and joining us again this week is Sarah Ward. Thank you for coming back, Sarah. Hello. Thank you for having me. Oh, two, two times as much, Sarah. This is just like so exciting. I'm really... Ah, guys! <laughs> yeah. Episode 14! So um, the Melbourne International Film Festival is still happening in the background, so we're lucky enough to get you for another week. Yes, and then this time next week, I'll be somewhere where it's sunny and warm. <laughs> yeah. 11 months of the year. <laughs> well, I know that my brain will still be residing mostly within Twin Peaks. Um, shall we kick into it? Because this is quite a humongous episode and there's been an awful lot of chat on social media about this. Hayley, you're making large hand gestures. <sighs> it's just all very exciting. Yes, Let's it is. do it. What did, you, what, did you have any immediate impressions? Look, I just screamed a whole lot during this episode and then I cried right at the end. So, you know, the whole emotional roller coaster, but such a... It was an episode that was so satisfying in so many ways while so intriguing in so many others that, yeah, it's. I think it's one of the best put together in terms of all of the different segments of content that we get and yeah, the journey that it takes you on. Mm. Oh, yeah, so I certainly felt, I felt this was a very frosty episode. I felt like there was a lot of lore and there was a few completely amazing lynching scenes, but for the most part, it was just a wonderful piece of storytelling. Like you were saying, we got this beautiful match of tone. We got a lot of information. We got um, a lot of time in Twin Peaks and we got a lot of time in some really cool characters. Yes, it was neat and it was tight and it was fast, which yes. we have not seen enough of. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so let's kick into it. We're like the dreamer. Much like part 12, we open with Law Dump from Gordon Cole and who's talking along with Albert about Blue Rose with Tammy. We open with Gordon Cole making a call on a touch telephone and in Twin Peaks a telephone rings and Lucy answers, which means we have these beautiful alignment of timelines. It's gorgeous. Um, Lucy, is that you? You've been there all these years? And then we get a bit of background into what might have been happening in the last 25 years involving... I, I want to know all about Andy and Lucy's trip to Bora Bora. So do I. <laughs> yeah. But I just lost it at the fact that, you know, that Lucy had to explain that, no, she hadn't, hadn't physically just stayed within the sheriff's department for those 25 years. She had left to go home and sleep. And Gordon Cole's reaction shot to that, just a look on David Lynch's face while he's sitting there listening to her saying, no, I've been on holidays to Bora Bora, just thinking, okay, what is going on here? Yeah, I was really confused because Bora Bora, I was like, well, I think it might be in the in this as, as a choice because it's two words that are the same, possibly a nice little double. Mm. But also it's like an, an inordinately expensive place. I had to write a travel article about it recently and there's nowhere cheap to stay on Bora Bora. It's no. always been one of those places that like if I had an unlimited amount of money, I would go to Bora Bora because it just seems so idyllic to spend a week there. But yes, you're exactly right. So expensive. Mm, yeah, it is. Yeah. And also featured a pop fiction in a key scene as well. Would you like me to put you through to Sheriff Truman? Yes, I'm returning his call. And then she puts him through. And then he doesn't under, he doesn't realise he's not speaking to Harry, which I thought was an interesting point. Lucy does her beautiful literalism again of like, I'm putting you th- director Gordon Cole through to you on line one. That's a blinking one. And then they have a brief discussion where Cole is brought up to speed about what's the staffing arrangements at the sheriff's station. What have you got for me, Frank? And then uh, Frank tells him that little that he knows, which is that there are these pages from the Laura Palmer's diary that indicate there could be two Coopers. I don't know any more than this, and I thought you should know. Does that mean something to you? I can't comment on this information. I want you to know that I really appreciate it. Kind of a beautiful opening. It does make me go like, there are some questions you could have asked, some follow-up questions, Gordon, but let's just leave it at that if you feel better. And meanwhile, in the FBI office in Buckhorn, which I'm guessing is where the conversation took place earlier, Albert's talking to Tammy. Oh, they're in the hotel, aren't they? Yeah. 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 Well, there's a lot of FBI equipment around, so it seems like they've taken down some pictures off the wall. They've moved in. Oh, so they've taken over. I think so. I think that's that's the impression I got. I'm not entirely sure. It did look different to the um, office we've seen before. Tammy, case number one is where it all began. And then uh, Albert tells Tammy the story of uh, the death of Lois Duffy which I was totally got chills from this story. I was, I, this was where I shouted at the, at the screen an awful lot because I thought it was such a beautiful story and so powerfully told. So two agents in uh, 1974 go to Olympia, Washington. They arrive at a motel investigating a, sh- a, a shooting. They hear the, a gunshot through the door. They kick the door down and they find two women inside, one dying from a bullet wound to the abdomen. The other one holds a gun that she drops as she backs away as they enter. 
Tammy is listening very intently and blinking in a quite strange way that may or may not be backwards blinking, which we've been getting of a bit so far during the return. They recognise the dying one as Lois Duffy and she whispers her last words to them, I'm like the blue rose. She smiles and then she dies and disappears before their eyes. The other woman screaming in the corner is also Lois Duffy and knows she didn't have a twin. Tammy blinks and says, hmm. While awaiting the trial for a murder she swore she didn't commit, Lois hangs herself. Those two arresting officers were Gordon Cole and Philip Jeffries. Now, what's the one question you should ask me? <laughs> Did you feel like this was like a test? That oh, definitely. Definitely. You, you have to make sure that she's going to go down the right line of thinking before you reveal everything to her. Yeah. Yeah, I thought it was a really um, interesting way to bring the audience on more inside with Tammy, I guess, to show that she has got the chops that we saw in the secret history. Um, and the correct question was, what's the significance of the blue rose? And the answer, the blue rose is not a natural thing and the dying woman was not natural. And then she uses the word tulpa. Did you find out much about tulpa? Uh, it's a Tibetan term, isn't it? Yeah. 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 Um, what do you, did, did this change the way you thought about Twin Peaks, the way that we now have this concept of tulpas, which are thought forms created from the collective unconscious or are being thought into existence? It did. It did seem very Lynchian. It did seem to fit in with, you know, his kind of broader worldview that we see across his, his kind of work. But, you know, I think that immediately you start thinking about all the different presence that you see throughout Twin Peaks or in different spaces connected to Twin Peaks and, you know, how they relate to the characters and what that all means. Mm, yeah. But was there anybody that you were like suddenly, okay, now this person just could have been thought into existence? A few, but I don't know. It's... It's one of those ones where I keep going back and forth. Mm, then I keep mm. thinking, you know, that these characters exist or do they? There's one, though, that comes as part of the next see- scene when Diane comes into the room and we get the really big reveal. Mm. And so I've started questioning Janie E and right. what, whether, whether she exists or whether she always existed, whether she's someone like Dougie that has been manifested at a certain point because we don't know how far back her story goes. And obviously Sonny Jim, you know, we know how old he is. He's only existed for that amount of time. Mm. But just thinking about if Dougie can be a manifestation, then what does that mean for Janie? And is Diane, you know, kind of fudging the facts a bit when she says that they're related? Yes. Okay. Interesting. I'm probably being a little more linear, um, and I just kind of took the term tulpa to be folded into what we already know about doubling and doppelgangers because it seems like all of the quote-unquote manufactured people that we've seen so far have always been doubles or at least as, as far as I can figure out, they've, they've always been doubles. So I just kind of sutured it into that mythology that we've already had laid out. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. Um, so before we get to that big reveal scene, we have a typically Lynchian comedy scene of Cole um, having to deal with the sound of a window cleaner, which becomes quite overwhelming to his, uh, his hearing aid. And uh, actually, sorry, before then, Cole walks in and says, coffee time, thumbs up, and a, a gift that is going to live for eternity, I feel. <laughs> um, I've, I've been sent that gift several times oh, already. and gold. I, I don't drink coffee, so <laughs> but it, that, that moment makes me want wow. to. That's the opposite. I drink coffee because of Twin Peaks. I just, um, I don't like the smell. I know everybody loves the smell of coffee. I don't. But yes, watching Twin Peaks is, is probably the, the closest encouragement that I get to thinking about it. Mm, okay. No, I had so many Twin Peaks marathons that in, in the end, tw- drinking coffee just reminded me of Twin Peaks marathons. And I just love being reminded of that. And now I'm addicted to coffee. Anyway. <laughs> just <clears> as <throat> David Lynch always wanted. <laughs> <laughs> um, so he gives, he gives uh, Albert the thumbs up. Albert, I think I've got it. And Diane is on her way. And then we get the hilarious, but yet kind of vaguely sinister window cleaning scene. This uh, squelching, squealing sound. Come on in, Diane. So she enters and makes herself at home as per um, Cole's instructions, which involves her sitting down on a chair that perfectly matches her shirt and smoking a cigarette. Then Deputy Diane reporting, says Diane. And Diane, last night, the last night you saw Cooper, did he mention Briggs? And she does not want to give up this information at all. Um, What did you make of Diane's performance here? Well, now that she's deputy and on their level, I guess. Yeah, it's it's interesting that, you know, she's so recalcitrant to confirm that she and Cooper had spoken about Major Briggs when, you know, the later revelation that she and Janie E may be related mm. if she is not lying and there appear to be a lot of theories on the internet based around the fact that she is actually lying. 
it's it's interesting that yeah she's cagey about that but this revelation which to the audience is just like oh my god yeah. and yeah I, I find the, the the way the scene plays around with that is pretty interesting uh, j- just to throw it out there do you think diane is telling the truth do you think that she and janie are actually half sisters personally yeah i do i mm. but i'm sucked in by her acting i mean i was t- totally on board with her meeting cooper sorry doppelcoop in the cell and i was yeah, I'm, I don't think she's just double-crossing going on from her. I don't think she's got mm. malevolent. Yeah, influence. I'm actually surprised how much of the internet seems to be just assuming that she is under the influence of Evil Coop in some way. Like, there's a lot of people out there, and, like, even with, with recaps I've been reading and things like that, it seems to be a lot of people are just assuming that this is uh, yeah, that this is true, whereas I'm, yeah, I'm far more on the side of, oh, no, I think there's something a mm. bit more yeah, where, where going you on sit? there. Yeah. This is part of where I started thinking about whether... Janie always existed and and because I was thinking about the fact that and it it ties into the wonderful number six that we will see Mm, later very prominently and we've seen previously before in that we've kind of had you know good and bad versions of Cooper um, even though we don't have Cooper at the moment so if you think about we have Cooper in the middle and Laura as well and Laura's death kind of set off this whole chain reaction you've then got Mr. C or Doppelcoop and possibly Diane somehow linked to that and on the other side you've got Dougie and Janie E and I don't I haven't thought through it to think about what that all means or I don't think that Lynch has given us enough but it's just something that the moment that she said that Janie E was was her half-sister I just thought maybe Janie E hasn't always been there Um, right okay I yeah it's still something that will sit in my mind and I this being Twin Peaks, it could either become nothing or, you know, there'll be a completely different answer. But yeah. it's just something that got me thinking. Mm. Yeah, so after sorry, just to dial back a little, so after she confirms yes she, she was with Briggs, or Cooper did mention Briggs the night that Cooper came to visit her. And um, Albert gives her the information, as you know, we've been investigating a murder involving Major Briggs and it turned out he died a few days ago and we found this in his stomach to die with love Jane E, which triggers uh, her recollection or leading on of Albert and Cole and luring them to Las Vegas. We're estranged and I hate her, she says. So I haven't talked to her for in years. So, yeah, this I thought was amazing because we have, including lots of listeners, um, people theorising madly and coming up with their own ideas and stuff. And I don't know anybody or anybody who knows anybody who came up with the theory that the E and Janie E stood for Evans and that meant that they were related. Which I just love that this can still be happening by the time that we're like past two thirds through this. And if you think series. about the performances, it, it makes sense yeah. in the way that they're played. Like it is one of those moments where you just go, you can absolutely see Diane in, in Janie E. And I think obviously the way that the characters were introduced and that we'd spent a lot of time with Janie E being Janie E before we got to see Diane, um, I think was really smart because when we see Diane, we don't meet we don't even contemplate the fact that she could be connected to absolutely anybody else. We just have this another, another, you know, strong vocal female character in the series that has this whole history. But yeah, now they've made that connection. You just, it's like a penny dropping that Mm. he's been leading us to think that all along, even though we haven't realized it until they've actually vocalized it. Yeah, exactly. And sorry. (laughs) No, if it turns out that they are actually sisters, I just find this, so hilarious because it's such boldly convenient writing. Oh, it is. <laughs> that I feel like if you brought that into like your your creative writing class, you would be howled down by everyone else. This is a duess machina. You can't do this this late in the game, you know. And also, damn, the Evans girls have extremely specific tastes in men. Very true. Yeah. They do indeed. Mm. And this is what makes me think that the convenience is that is there something more to it? I think in the mannerisms that there's so much that's similar about them that I think that I don't think she's lying and that they're connected, but there's something about me that is questioning how they're actually connected and what Janie E's purpose is in relation to what Dougie's purpose is. But again, it could absolutely turn out to be nothing, but mm. yeah. Also, do we reckon this has been set up just so Naomi Watts and Laura Dern can have a giant act off at some point? I'll be looking forward to that and I hope that's part of it. I just hope they yell at each other a whole lot because just it would just be such a glorious scene for those two actresses and for those two characters. I can just see Janie E asking her not to smoke, Mm. which will kick it off. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So, uh, Tammy, get the Las Vegas office on the line. 
Cue the funniest scene in my books, I think possibly the entire return. A man credited as Agent, Agent Wilson um, rushes into a mostly empty room that, seen, that is the office of the Las Vegas FBI um, Special Agent Randall Headley. Director Cole is on the line for you. Immediately, they, uh, Headley looks quite flustered. Um, the man straightens up. Gordon, and Gordon Cole says, I want everything you've got or can find on Douglas Jones. Put caution in the shotgun seat. <laughs> I've never heard that expression before, but I want to hear it again. Um, get back to me. Your, um, your man has my info. And then it turns out there's 23 Douglas Joneses in the Las Vegas, greater Las Vegas area. Um, are we saving this line for you to do over the closing no. music? Okay, right. Wilson, how many times have I told you, this is what we do in the FBI? <laughs> Sorry, this is what we do in the FBI. Oh, anyway, that was just genius. Oh, it was so good. And then the moment that we see that character and I just yell, Stan, at my screen. <laughs> because I'm like, huh? What? Like, I just I love seeing people from Mad Men pop oh, up God, in absolutely yeah. everything. But that was just totally <laughs> unexpected. <laughs> but yeah, such an amusing scene. And mm. just the tone of it. And I, something I've been thinking about a lot lately, it probably has something to do with the fact that, so we've been gifted all of this wonderful David Lynch time on screen during the return. He hasn't really acted significantly other than the two episodes of Louis that he was in since he was in Firewalk with me. We very, you know, it has basically been 25 years. And then I've seen a film while I've been here called Lucky, which stars Harry Dean Stanton and David Lynch has a wonderful monologue in it. And he's in it more than you would expect and getting really sad about the fact that we have three episodes left. Left. And then, you know, we're not going to have the, his gorgeous line deliveries and his mannerisms on screen anymore. Um, yeah, it's just something that this whole opening segment of, you know, the first couple of scenes of this episode, just this melancholy of, you know, I just want to keep oh, watching yes. David yeah. Lynch. It's He's given us a great gift in terms of his presence that I don't think I realised I missed so much. Mm, yeah, 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 it's really true. But plus, yeah, plus nobody, I think, don't think anyone is expecting him to be in it this much and to be this consistently hilarious and this much of a great actor. Well, I mean, Gordon Cole's become our surrogate for Agent Cooper. You know, we can't have Cooper, so we have to have Cole and, and Albert, you know, doing all of the investigating. And so we are getting a lot more of his quirky mannerisms, but I'm with you. I, You know, he's directed the whole thing. He's co-written it. Um, the fact that he was going to star in so much, but I don't think ever occurred to anybody. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I do love that the next scene, basically, like he satirizes himself. It's almost like he's been listening to some of your feedback, Hayley. <laughs> Look, because, because, of course, I find a lot of the David Lynch on screen moments to be highly indulgent. Yes. Anyway. Oh, look, it is indulgent. And, you know, it's incredibly indulgent when a filmmaker who is an actor in what he's making has a dream <laughs> about a very attractive actress. In which Monica Bellucci just appears. Yes, I had a of Paris. That's where that French funding went, Andy. I know. Yeah. It's ka-ching. This is a money moment that we're I had another for. Monica Bellucci dream. As yes. you do. Yes. And I love the fact that he's had several, but he has spoken about them with Albert several times enough to be able to say I had another Monica Bellucci dream <laughs> I'm honestly very surprised given yes I highly believe that he has recounted these dreams to Albert so many times mm. I'm so disappointed there wasn't a cutaway to Miguel Ferrer just like eye rolling heavily oh, but we just get more in, in Miguel Ferrer impassive face which has been such <laughs> which a, is basically just an eye roll anyway yeah exactly it's been getting such a workout these last few episodes that face um, and so Diane leaves the room. I'm not quite sure why. Um, before I came up, I was on the phone with Sheriff Truman in Twin Peaks. He gives um, Albert the, brings him up to date with the information about the diary. And then, bring, then, the, the, then we're into the Monica Bellucci dream, which involves, of course, a black and white flash to Paris. Um, and friend of the show, Bisque, um, provided us with some amazing information about this. <gasps> Tell us all. So, in, uh, so Cole says, uh, we met at the, at the cafe. Cooper was there, but I couldn't see his face. Um, Monica was very pleasant. She had brought friends. We all had coffee. And Cole stares at her Bellucci, who start, seems to be crying. I think she's like shedding a tear in this scene. And then she advised him to look over his shoulder. And in real life, if you go to this cafe, over the shoulder is an art gallery, which is currently exhibiting da a David Lynch exhibition. So he literally just left, crossed the road, shot this scene, got the French tax rebate, went back to, to an exhibition. There's a piece of paper that's included in the David Lynch, the Art Life documentary that actually details this scene. So this has been spoiled for, for people who had gone to see this documentary. Wow. I so it was like packing it in. fuck out of here. Wow, <laughs> no. I've seen that Thank documentary and for, I did not notice that. <laughs> and in this, later in this episode, we see some of David Lynch's art. Yes. So, which is a piece of art that I actually have a copy of in my home and I've spent 
a very long time staring at it when it was on a wall in Brisbane. And so when we see it, I felt kind of scared inside. Like, I look at this all the time. Your house but, is coming for you. <laughs> yeah, possibly. But, um, yes, yeah, that's a wonderful connection. Isn't, yeah, so, yeah, thank you very much, Bess. Um, so it's also in this dream, uh, Bellucci says to him, uh, the ancient phrase, we're like the dreamer who dreams and then lives inside the dream. I told her I understood. And then she said, but who is the dreamer? Um, and did you? I mean, did your thoughts immediately jump to somebody at this particular point? No, no, okay. mine didn't. Um, but who is the dreamer? And a very powerful, uneasy feeling feeling came over me. Monica looks past me and indicates to look back at something that is happening there. I turned and looked, and I saw myself. And I saw myself long ago in the old Philadelphia offices. And then we cut to this scene that is from the missing pieces. I think we just sat around and had a look and compared the dialogue, and it is different. Um, so in the firewalk I, I with me, it's, in, it's actually in firewalk. It is, but it's in, oh, there are two scenes. There's one in the missing pieces, which is a separate scene, which doesn't have the overlaid footage of the um. of the, the the convenience store. And in the in the film firewalk with me, uh, he says, "Who do you think this is?" There, when he points to Cooper. But in uh, the dream and in the missing pieces scene, and in the one that we get in part fourteen, who do you think that is there? So he being Philip Jeffries? Yes. Oh, so this so is Philip Jeffries. So AKA David Bowie. Yes. yes so we, are so we finally got some Bowie. Yes, we finally got some Bowie. Some archival Bowie. Because but we will accept it. Oh, yes. Oh, gosh, we will accept any of it. And we've heard so much about Philip Jeffries throughout the story that it was going to have to happen at some point. Part of me is, is disappointed that that wasn't still this sneaky, you know, secret recorded appearance. No, there's still four episodes I know, to go. I know there is. Four? Four? Yes. Four episodes, three weeks. Three, yeah, yes. <laughs> yes. Yes. And 16 and then 17, 18 are together, I think. I think I have to just think that there's not going to be. So if there is any, it's going to be a wonderful surprise. But if there's not, it's okay with that. It's okay. We can accept but, the mm. gift we have just been given. We have yes. indeed. So Philip Jeffries was both there and not there in this scene, um, as per the way that it played out in Firewalk With Me. All throughout this scene, we get this ominous clanking industrial music, which I don't, which wasn't part of the firewalk in the I don't believe. I think no. this has been added on later. As has, I think, the voice of Philip Jeffries. Yeah, it seems like it's been overlaid in some way because when you watch Firewalk with me, David Bowie is kind of doing a southern accent or at least a British man doing a southern accent <laughs> whereas the voice that we get in episode 14 is subtly different. It does seem like this dialogue has been re-recorded. For whatever reason, I'm not really sure. It could be something to do with copyright. Um, but the person who played the voice, uh, Nathan, uh, Nathan Frizzell, um, tweeted that he, uh, when people asked him why, why this happened, he said it's because of David Lynch and we don't know, which is a great answer for all sorts of things to do with this. Anyway, very, very interesting scene and also brought back a lot of feelings. Feelings. Oh, yeah. They're all over the place. I just strongly enjoyed seeing everyone's youthful faces again, including baby Kyle. I just had this moment of where I like literally just said to the screen, oh, I remember you. And, you know, it's, it's not to diss Kyle's current face. Kyle's current face is also very handsome. He's like a fine wine. Anyway, continue. Doesn't he have his own wine? He, he does, does have his own wine. Mm-hmm. I was trying to find out whether I could order it to Australia, but I think it's difficult. You can go visit it. It's, it's a side trip you can do from the Twin Peaks Festival to go to. <laughs> of course it is. Chased by Bear, I think it's wow. called. Mm. Yes. But yes, look, it's. I, I love the way that he has been incorporating the past into this, that there is such an affection for who the characters were then, but also the cast members that, you know, we, we can't see in it now. So, you know, as we saw earlier when um, Frank Truman tells him about Harry Truman, it's just every time this happens, it just, I, I just feel warm and fuzzy inside, which isn't something that Twin Peaks often makes you feel, yes. <laughs> but it's just such a nice touch. It was the same with Doc Haywood. Um, just waiting to see if we can have a way that we're going to get a reference to Pete in this and I'll probably lose it but just the respect that this series has for the characters that are no longer or the actors that are no longer with us or part of it um yeah this scene very much brings that to the fore Mm, I agreed um actually that's pursued by bear not chased by bear for those who are interested in sourcing um, some of Kyle's wine which I'm glad aren't we all yes um, we go back to the Twin Peaks Sheriff's Office where Bobby is bringing in sandwiches. <laughs> in case he hadn't won our hearts over already, he provides uh, food. Um, and who ordered the cheese sandwich? Andy orders the cheese sandwich <laughs> because he is good and pure and he doesn't need anything else. Mm. Yes, he may also be vegetarian. 
as a sign of his purity of heart. Um, Frank and Chad walk into the room. Hawk suddenly pulls his gun on Chad. <gasps> and fuck you, Chad! We have action stations. The story that could have dragged on for more parts, it gets wrapped up very, very quickly. No, good. Yes. Throw that fucker in jail. You're making a big mistake. You made the mistake, Chad. So Take satisfying. Take his badge and lock him up. We've been watching you for months. And there's your roast beef and cheese, Hawk says to Truman. <laughs> Great. So that um, has also been uh, responsible for a forest of new memes on the Cult of Chad Facebook page that I recommend people go to if they oh need God. cheering up during the day. I'll be glad to provide a link to that. <laughs> Please do. Uh, John Pericillo, who plays Chad, is an active member on this closed oh, Facebook page. amazing. And That's he, so good. He likes amazing. a lot of the ridiculous things that people make up. As an aside... I used to have a very horrible next door neighbor whose name was Chad. And so we have yelled expletives at Chad for a good number of years from inside our house when he would annoy us, not that he could hear us. So seeing Twin Peaks have a character called Chad who is horrible and people yell at like this is just so personally satisfying. And the fuck you, Chad, was trending, I think, for a little while in some parts of yes. America. I, I, I particularly like Bobby's last shut up, like, as they <laughs> haul him off. It was great. The withering put down on the way out, yeah. Um, and then we arrive in the Twin Peaks forest, and we're finally on our way to Jack Rabbit's palace. After all, <laughs> well, I misled so many of our listeners saying it's next week for sure. <laughs> Definitely, it's September 30, so we're going to be going there tomorrow. Four or five parts later. But Here we finally are. There's nothing for sure. <coughs> I know, but yes, that's true. I should, I'm a fool. Um, shots of forested mountain in cloud with the sounds of wind whooshing. Yes. Um, a car is driving slowly along the road. Hawk, Truman, Bobby and Andy get out of the sheriff's car. Um, and there is ample opportunity for merch, I feel, from the um, ensuing scenes of Twin Peaks Sheriff's Department signature lunchboxes as well as clothes and I'd like a lunch Patches. That'd yeah, be nice. That'd be great. There's lots of sounds of birds. Then we get a shot of, of electricity lines passing through the forest. Mm-hmm. Then we cut back to the car. We also get some very obviously smoke machine smoke. Mm-hmm. This was clearly oh, this one coming, of those yep. instances mm-hmm. where it's just like, no, we're just going to do the crap special effects <laughs> that are barely special. Um, before we get there, we got we, got, we, we do walk past some beautiful ferns and very verdant foliage. And I and some other fans recognise this as O'Lally State Park, which is where uh, Teresa Banks' body was found by the river. Is this where Bobby also shot the drug dealer? Yes. That apparently we're yeah. never going to talk about we're never again. Never going to talk about that. No. Uh, you know, no, and he's, um, he's a cop now. Like it's it's obviously all okay. A, a good friend of the show took a leak on Jack Rabbit's palace without knowing this last year. Oh that it was my even, god! It was even sacred law. Oh, oh wow! So yes, and it's um it's a place with a history. They could jar their pee now and sell it on Reddit. <sighs> You're almost almost definitely right, and I don't really want to think about that. Um. So I think, sorry, along with the shot of electricity lines, we start getting interesting sounds happening. It's not just nature. We start getting very uh, interesting industrial sounds. We also get some interesting play with the frame rates here. I don't know if you guys noticed that. There was some Mm. shots that was showing, signifying some sort of shift. I don't know whether Mm -hmm. it's time or it's just... Some weird flickering. Yeah, it was just a nice uneasy feel that, that was accompanying this nice walk through the woods. This used to be the road where we're walking. Bobby points out the Major's old listening posts before it burnt down. And when he asked about it, he only remembers lots and lots of machines. And Bobby has this beautiful smile on his face as if he's... Oh, it's a gorgeous yeah, smile. Yeah, it's a smile I really like seeing. And then we arrive at Jackrabbit's Palace, which... Did this remind anybody of anything else? The shape of this? No. Okay. The, the bell in space? No? Interesting, yes. That is one of the things. Ah. Yeah, I thought that was a potential. It does look a bit like that strange um, building that they're in. It also looks a lot like the Emerald City. From Wizard oh, of Oz, tying on, tying in with there this. There we go. Okay. Yeah, and it also looked like a tree that could have been struck by lightning. Also, it reminded me of the place when we saw Major Briggs in season two when he was kidnapped, and we got that brief shot of him on a forest throne. Mm. Mm. Yeah, so, so I think we might have seen it before, or something very similar to it before, when he was taken to the White Lodge. We'd sit here and we'd make up great tall tales, says Bobby in his reverie, and then Hawk pulls out, Hawk, of course, being the tracker and director, 253 yards due east. They all grab some soil and put it in their pockets. And then as soon as they do this, we get much more ominous music and we begin to approach the place where we see all this uh, strange smoke, which reminded me a bit of a hot spring or something. It was a really interesting kind of spring. It was very fake smoke. It was, but it was, very it was such a fake. It was so simple, but it was so effective. I love the sound of the, we got of the electricity going on with it. It was like the electricity was coming out of it. Uh, and then we um, get this, a very, very strange collection of images within it. We get the body of Nido, and we get a small pool 
that looks like the mirror image of the pool from Glastonbury Grove, which had the scorched engine oil in it. I'm not sure what's in this pool. I'm theorising it might be milk and honey or something along those lines. Um, did anyone else have, have shout at the screen when they saw this happening? Mm. I, got I thought that when excited. we saw Nido, it was very interesting that in an episode where we've seen David Bowie, we see a girl who fell to earth. Oh, good call. Um, I've not made that connection. Right. And... I realised that it's something that, well, I remembered rather that the actress that plays um, Frank Truman's wife was in The Man Who yeah, Fell to Earth. Candy. With, she was. Yep. Candy Clark. Clark. Yep. Yeah. With David Bowie. So, mm. um, yes, connections are, just, some, are plenty. Yes. I'm obviously hoping that it's all intentional, but I'm just going to read it that way anyway. <laughs> um, it's 2.53, fellas, says Frank, um, which is the last time we saw Nido. And then Bobby checks his watch and an electrical crackling op- um, begins and then the vortex opens up above them. And then Andy, who of course is the heart of the group, who's holding her hand, comforting her as best he can while she's making strange bird noises or b- backwards bird speech. I'm not really sure. She's making very interesting sounds. And then of all the people, Andy is taken to the White Lodge. Did anybody see this coming? Not really. And I did kind of in a moment of, because I was very, very worried that it was actually the Black Lodge taking him. And I was just like, no, don't take Andy. He's the purest <laughs> of us all. Um, but yes, of course, it makes far more sense that the White Lodge would be mm. would be after Andy. Yes. Just to kind of, you know, give him some pointers. Yeah. From yeah. the fireman. We I know, finally we finally get the name. Yeah. A actual name for the giant. No mm. more question marks. No. No. No, I did like how, um, unlike everybody else who's gone to the White Lodge, Andy stumbles straight away mm. and seems disoriented. Um, but then he's immediately he sits down and just looks quite calm and then he starts blinking backwards and we get uh, another d- uh, like info dump, but this time it's more like by a PowerPoint than being explained because <laughs> he lies back and sees a series of images. If only watching PowerPoints was really <laughs> like that. Well, yeah, it was fascinating um, because he, he seemed, I couldn't work out what he was holding. It looked like some sort of origami... Well, when I first saw it, I was reminded of the mask that we saw um, in Firewalk With Me and in the series with the boy oh, and yeah. also the jumping man. And until smoke comes out of it, that's actually what I thought it was. But then I realised that, no, it was something that, that wasn't just a mask, that there was more to the shape than that. But that's the first thing I thought of. Mm. Yeah, I, I didn't really it um I, I did very much enjoy oh goodness the, the beautiful black and white in this yes and how oh man harry goetz's face is just perfect for this beautiful black and white and mm. the way he just his face just quietly reacts to things or just take things in because i think andy was always a character who just always quietly took things in well, that's the thing. I think that's why it makes perfect sense for this character, like for Andy to be in this position because anybody else, even I think Hawk, even Sheriff Truman, there would have been a slight degree of cynicism in what they were seeing. Like, where am I? What is this? But Andy is just going to sit there and accept it. Mm-hmm. And then when we see Andy, when he comes out of it, you know, you just want to cheer. Like, I want to clap. Yeah. I just because it's just he he knows immediately, kind of. He, he makes sense of what he's mm-hmm. seen and he knows what to do. And, yeah, I think it's really lovely that Andy's the one that gets all of this, you know, fabulous exposition dumped mm. on him because, you know, he and Lucy are essentially the most innocent and good characters in Twin Peaks now, of which it seems through our journey through the town during the return, there aren't many left. Mm. So well, I think every, almost everybody else has been corrupted in some sort of way. Mm. And, you know, Andy and Lucy have stayed Just exactly the constant. same um, yeah. other than having Wally Brando. Yeah. yeah. And, he, and he was being courageous and that's what is needed to open the door along with fear and love. So, yeah, it was interesting. And I also was... Uh, I thought it was a very, very interesting choice of images that we got to that we got to see with Andy. Uh, the most important ones being Laura and the Angels. Very key. Yes, yes. Um, but weirdly, we get the so we get um, the convenience store. We get the woodsman moving, saying "Got a light," and then we get a shot of the girl screaming in the Twin Peaks High School, which is a weird one because we had we saw this at the very beginning of part one too, and it's a really interesting choice of image to use. And I'm not quite sure why. I guess it embodies the impact of Laura on the town mm-hmm. straight away and the emotional response that people have. But that was, I thought it was an interesting thing. We got a shot, that really interesting shot of Laura with the angels on either side mm-hmm. <laughs> and then the, the panning along the dra- red drapes in the background. 
Uh, then what, we go back to Nido, lying in the forest. A shop, and then we got a shot of Cooper and the, the two Coopers the separating. Two Coopers yeah. separating and shaking. Yeah. The images mm-hmm. are shaking as if they're going moving very quickly, or with great intensity. Uh, and then possibly the weirdest one of all, which is um, Lucy being led through the corridor in the Twin Peaks police station, which is either a scene that happened before part one or it's the flash forward to a scene that we haven't seen yet. Mm. And she was led, being led there by Andy. Mm. And she looks is. quite upset or mm. concerned, yeah. Or at least, you know, kind of, what's the word I'm looking for? Kind of expectant that something was about to happen. Mm. Yeah. The fireman gazes at him and he, Andy keeps looking up. And we get a shot of the telephone pole. We get three shots of the of the pole with the number six on it. Then he's, he sits back, or blinks, looks at the fireman, and then his chest beats really in a really ex, like exaggerated way and then vanishes. And he seems to have exhorted all this knowledge straight into his heart, his mm. pure heart. Mm-hmm. That's what I took anyway. And then we, we get a cut back to Jack Rabbit's palace and the other men flickering as if they've just been returned. Maybe they had the same trip as well but didn't, we didn't see theirs or maybe there's some sort of disorientation that they went. It's also the fact that they don't remember their exactly, trips yes. if they went yeah. anywhere, whereas Andy very clearly does remember. And thank goodness they took their soil with them. Yes. Or maybe they, could still, they would still be there. Who knows? Um, this is also like the place... Uh, the fireman is theorised to be the log lady's husband because he was a fireman and he was uh, very t- known for being very tall mm. as well as being a lumberjack. So That's a very Possibly the site where he was killed. Mm. Mm. Because he died, I think, the night they were on the wedding night. Yes. As per yeah. this, the secret history. And Andy is acting really, really differently and very confidently and knows exactly what we need to do and everybody follows him. Yes. We need to get her down the mountain. She's very important and people want her dead, mm. which I think was a pretty big escalation in, yes. in Nido's importance. Um, yeah. Do you think that we'll see somebody tomorrow in the same space? Ooh. Because uh, the gateway is open from October 1st to 2nd mm. and we've seen the first... And we've seen one person who fell through space and landed on Earth, and we've seen one other person fall through space. Mm. Also, presumably, if people are out to kill Nido, who's to say that who's coming next won't be the people who want to do that? Possibly, mm. definitely, yeah. But being the White Lodge, I'm feeling like there may be enough power here to, to ensure it. Anyway, I think we might see Laura next week because she mm. also, after taking her face off and showing us all the white light coming out of it, mm. got sucked through space. And I think in a, following, in a scene following that of Nido... So, I know, hopefully, I just really want to see Laura. Me too. I think it's overdue. <laughs> Come on. Um, Laura is the one. She's the one, apparently. Yeah. Um, back at the sheriff's station, Lucy's putting pajamas on Nido and telling a story about how they haven't, she hasn't used these pajamas since the night with the dog, <laughs> which is another hint at the beautiful domestic life of um, Lucy and Andy. Um, and, of course, Chad is really unimpressed about being locked up in a cell. Um, Idiots, you're a joke, Andy. You're not kind of cop at all. Um, and then we get this guy who's credited as drunk, like mimicking everything that is being said. Uh, Lucy looks really, really um, happy about Andy's newfound confidence as he scolds Chad and says, you give good policemen a bad name. Um, and Nidus is continuing to make her bird noises. And did this remind anybody of another scene that we've already seen in Twin Peaks of people being in a cell making animal noises? Um, in the pilot episode, Mike and Bobby are locked up and they're making oh, dog noises yes, at James, shouting at him. Yeah, mm. you know, it's just a similar thing. Um, so what did you make of drunk, of this particular character oh, who's God. mimicking things? And oh. drooling a whole lot of mess. Yes. Um, well, I was... I'd, I made a connection with a scene later on and I thought for a while that maybe it was Billy, but considering that he is credited in the credits as drunk and not as Billy, I'm a little bit shaky mm. on that connection now considering, unless it is one of those kind of secrets that Frost and Lynch want to keep to their chests for another episode more. Mm. Yeah, okay. Because the last time we thought we saw Billy, the actor was credited as Farmer mm. and everyone assumed this was Billy because of the story that was happening around about the missing truck. But this is a totally different actor, so I'm not really sure. Plus, um, uh, friends of the show and next week's guests, uh, Jess and Themby, uh, who listeners may remember, um, pointed out that this isn't blood drooling from his mouth, as per Audrey's description of Billy, which made a lot of people think oh. this particular person was Billy. It's either very, very, very dark blood or oil. Oh. And I was like, really? This seems like a stretch. But then it is just continually coming out him like it's a tap. It doesn't seem like... Yeah, so it was, it was, it's a very, very strange scenario. There's definitely something very... Yeah, and I really hope you find out what's going on because I want to know how he's... And in. if it turns out that he's some kind of, you know, supernatural, unearthly 
creature or someone who has been corrupted by such, I think having him a couple of cells down from Nido is not... Yeah, assuming he's bad, he's like leaking scorched engine oil or something. But they did seem in a way to be communicating because there was less repetition going on when Chad finally butted out of the conversation and let them like do the birds bird squawking sort of sounds and then he was... It's, I don't know, it felt like there was some sort of conversation going on there in, a, in another language. Mm. Yes, yeah. I, I, I do have to point out that, yeah, I way back when she first appeared in episode three, I was pretty nonplussed yes. with mm. a blind woman who couldn't speak and now I'm even more nonplussed by a blind woman who can't speak you know anything that's recognizable and also shows up completely starkers so mm. yeah that's a thing yeah I think she's, think about. she's gonna be really really important I think she's mm. got a lot to do yes well I'm, I'm, I'm hoping she regains a voice at some point because mm. yeah i just yeah there's just there's an, there's a lot of stuff around women who have their senses robbed of them through through media that is unsettling mm-hmm. but i do think that sometimes the way that lynch portrays women isn't so much of you know it, it's not representation equals endorsement yeah. it's recognizing you know the situation that women find themselves in particularly within Twin Peaks which is you mm. know so horrific mm. towards them that I, I do appreciate that kind of sometimes we we get these characters and feel like okay so there's another mm. woman that this is happening to mm. but we see so much tox- toxic masculinity in that town that as we do see in a scene later on yes mm. exactly mm. so I think that I know I think the balance works but I I do understand yeah yeah I'm I'm really hoping considering she's now been like she's she's not just a throwaway character she's returned I'm really hoping that she'll be very important and hopefully she will have something to reveal that doesn't render her just a cipher oh yeah 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 I'm sure um with then we move to the Great Northern. We get one of those really nice old timey, old timey nineteen nineties exterior Waterfalls. shots, the waterfall and the Northern at night. But this time we can see a side of the Great Northern we've never seen before. The outside, round the back, where the rubbish is taken <laughs> where all out. Where the bins are. The bin, yeah. And we get James or Jimmy, as he's known to his mate, Freddie Sykes. <laughs> I'm dying it's, to know what you guys thought of this. It seems to me a very English thing, though, for like even if he's known by James to everybody else, that Freddie would call him Jimmy. Yeah. It just seemed to work. It's either an English thing or an American writing what he, they think English people like. Very which I think true. we got a lot of in this scene. So Freddie Sykes, who's from East End, London town, and shares his name with the one armed man from the Fugitive TV series. Um, is a man who's wearing a green glove and they're sitting cracking walnuts. I think it was walnuts, so they're cracking nuts of some sort. I think it's walnuts. Yeah. And both are wearing Great Northern security outfits, which means that James has a job working for Ben Horn. So <laughs> that was an interesting uh, move for Twin Peaks. After a bit of banter in which we learned that it's um, James' birthday, happy birthday, James, and uh, Freddie have a conversation about, we've only got one more delivery, then we can hit the roadhouse. Who's playing? And then I was like, oh, my God, are they going to actually say Eddie Vedder or something? Or is it going to be some, like, Seattle band we haven't seen yet? You want to see if Renee's there, don't you? But she's married. I know. So this is continuing James now, like, nearly three-decade-long habit of just falling in love with people who are already taken, which I think is ex- exclusively the people with whom he's yes. coveted. And Freddie is going on 23, and uh, he eventually tells, after a bit of reticence, tells uh, James this amazing story about a green gardening glove and meeting the fireman. So it feels like a story that could have happened earlier if they wanted to let us know who the fireman was. But this is kind of like rushed in as soon as we've had the fireman scene. So I don't know if I need to go through it. It's quite a long story. But it basically involves um, uh, him buying a glove from a person and then being sucked into a vortex or being instructed to buy a glove by the fireman, who seems to be inordinately clear and straightforward with his instructions, unlike we've ever seen the giant be, if they even are the same, one and the same, as it seems like they are. This bloke is there, the fireman's what he's called, and he says, go to the hardware store near your flat and you'll find a rack of green rubber gardening gloves. One package will already be open with the right-handed glove inside. Purchase that package and place the glove on your right hand. Your right hand will possess the power of an enormous pile driver. I can't imagine the fireman saying that. I mean, I can't imagine any lodge entity saying or your hand Or saying will... that much, <laughs> all at once. Yeah. <laughs> it's so strange. Because, um, like, you know, Cooper gets, you know, I will tell you three things, a smiling bag and, you know, random British dude... Gets like very specific instructions yes. and a plane ticket to Seattle from London already arranged for him by the time when he gets to the airport. 
Um, Mr. Jobsworth. Oh, no, God, there was just so much ridiculous <laughs> Dick Van Dyke style. East End I was, was going to say this. I'm just sort of like, this is like a Dick Van Dyke level of just shitting on Britain performance. Um, one, Freddie Sykes is like the most self-consciously British name <laughs> that is clearly made up by Americans. And it's a terrible London accent that the actor Jake Wardle is employing here. Like, um, what was... And, and um, I was trying to find out whether this guy was actually English or not, and Andy actually has a bigger story as to why he was actually cast by David Lynch. Uh, yeah, so um, Jake Waddle is known for being um, like famous for having a YouTube video in which he does a whole bunch of different accents. And he does this kind of trick where he just moves through these accents very, very quickly. And he's never been an actor before, but for somehow David Lynch came across this and uh, was captivated for some reason by this um, vi- uh, viral meme and uh, decided to cast him. Well, he actually got in touch and said, I want you to be involved in a project that's coming up soon. And he actually is from the East End of London. I'm sorry. You were kidding. <laughs> Yeah. You were kidding. He was born in na- late 1992, according to his jackwall.com. Uh, um, this is an outrage. 25 years ago. I didn't that is an outrage. No one from London would say clerk instead of clerk. Get out of <laughs> Unless here. Unless instructed to. Mm. I don't know. Anyway, I, no, I, I didn't, wasn't bothered by the accent, but I was bothered by the dialogue. I just thought it was so hilarious. London town? Like, is this London a, town. Is this a Guy Ritchie movie? Yeah, exactly, yeah. <laughs> I was Guy Ritchie from the 1950s. I don't know. You know, and I'll break you, Gregory... Which I'm pretty sure no one in London has used for a good Gosh. 40 years at least. Anyway, so once you've got the glove, go to, go to Twin Peaks, Washington, the US, United States, and you'll find your destiny. If so, you were a British person and you were greatly upset by this scene, please contact us <laughs> and let us know. Because we feel you. I can say I know one British person who had no comment at all on this scene. So, you know. Well, I'm yes. mostly British and I found it hilarious. Um, but I did find the tone, the tonal shift in this storytelling was was kind of impressive in a way because it's kind of like, oh, what? This is ridiculous. And then you're like, oh, my God, this is actually kind of amazing. And are they assembling some sort of superhuman force to deal with the woodsmen when they finally arrive in Twin Peaks? And well, will there be an arm wrestle? Yeah, you know. Between yeah. super power driver, you know, hand. Is he some kid just like running through the woodsman going, oi, governor, and just <laughs> punching them all in the face? <laughs> is he going to meet Nadine? I know. Um, oh, my God. Does she still have, I don't know. Yeah. I know. Just, the possibilities. I know, but it's just nuts because, you know, we've got four hours to go, still we're being introduced to a seemingly very important mm-hmm. new character. And a green glove. Anyway, I've got to go check the furnace, says James, um, while Freddie still stares at his green gardening glove. Um, as soon as James goes into the furnaces, it's suddenly another massive tonal shift again and we get the, the glass harmonica sound that we get. It's like, a bit like a Tibetan singing bowl, the, the hum, mm-hmm. better known as the, the Great hum. Northern Hum, that isn't 430 hertz. And James is looking very unsure and suddenly this is, looks the first time like we've ever seen the place that was in the end of the European pilot mm, where they yes. go to the furnace under the great, uh, under Calhoun Memorial mm-hmm. Hospital, I think that was. This looks a bit like that but it's, I'm sure it's not the same. But we do get a lot of uh, old-timey hissing machines and James is looking very unsure. I have to say that um, David Lynch's sound design in this episode certainly got, you know, like, Every episode it gets a, a workout, but I think this one in particular, the, there were so many moments where I was like, all right, you know, you're really like you're giving yourself this extra great job here today, mm. David. Yeah, there's all sorts of sounds mixed into this as well. Um, I've been getting regular bombardments from Jess and Thembe throughout the day who are unpacking these particular scenes and going, oh, my God, can you believe that there's X, Y is mixed into this? They'll be on next week to talk about this stuff because that's Excellent. more their ballpark than, than mine. Uh and so he, then he arrives at a, a door where the hum seems to be coming from and then we cut. Does anyone have any ideas what they think is behind this door? No, we'll find out next week. Okay. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm, I'm very excited to see. Because yeah. it does almost focus on the door knob. Mm. Well, and door yes, itself. We've, we've seen well, not doorknobs before. Yes. It's Josie. We've seen humming. Finally. Joan Chen is coming back. <laughs> She's not on the cast list, but you I'd know. ignore the cast list. <laughs> Joan Chen or bust. <laughs> I would love it so much if she did come. Like if Joan Chen can be in it, then David Bowie can definitely be in it. Yeah, yes, hundred mm. percent. Okay. Yeah, good cool. call. Yeah. Um, so then we cut to Elks Point Bar or number <gasps> Elks Point number, number nine, nine bar. bar. Yeah. Sorry, Shit yes. is about to go down. Yeah. So um, Sarah Palmer is walking through a park, smoking, um, and it's, this is does, immediately does you do not get the roadhouse vibes from this place. It is no. there is sound, the sound it's of pool. It's a different joint. This is more like gave me haps vibes. Um, this is a truck you kind of. Yes, joint. it is. It's a world full of truckers, truck drivers. 
Yeah. And as soon as she walks in, we see a sign for Pabst, one for Budweiser, and one that says happy hour. So game is indeed on. <laughs> um, she walks by herself, past the bar, sits on a stool. Before the guy can even say, what would you like? She says, Bloody Mary. And then we get a cut to a guy who's credited as Trucker sitting at the bar with a cap and a grey ponytail sipping a beer. Did anyone else think this was Leo? I, I did immediately think he was so Leo-like. Mm. And we don't mean Leo 9. No, he's kind of like had a little advised hair, a very bad fashion and an awful attitude. Then we get some pretty crazy shit as he tries to make a move on her and starts getting extremely insulting, um, assumes that yeah. she's a lesbian. This, this is a scene that every single woman has lived through at one point in time. Mm. Yes, it's a very, it's a very unpleasant mm. altercation. Um, and and an extremely recognisable one. Yes, yes, indeed. Not the same response, though. Unfortunately, no. If only we could all do yes. this. <laughs> Maybe you're one of them bull dykes. Um, and then she turns and says, "I will eat you." <gasps> which, uh, which I don't know. There was uh, the sound design going on in the background here was possibly even more malevolent than that statement. Like you'd do that. And then she utters the immortal line that I think women all over the world would like to say, you really want to fuck with this, and then pulls her face off. And then rips his throat And out. inside is a black mist and a shadow of a hand with a blackened ring finger, mm-hmm. which I think this is a sim- very symbolic. Then two darts seem to fly out, or two, like, icicles, or there was something. So I, I thought it was electric because it kind oh, of... Oh, yeah, yeah, you're probably because right. Because it kind of went with, an, with that um, electricity hum. Yeah, the lightning, like, lightning bolts or something, yeah. Um, and he screams and falls to the floor dead. Um, and she screams, he just fell over. What, with half his neck missing, says the barman. Yeah, sure is a mystery, huh? <laughs> and so we also get within, beneath her face, a very brief glimpse of head number two, an artwork of David oh, Lynch's. Oh, yes, 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 that's right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That, yes, made me sit there and go, I look at this all the time. Is that the, is that the giant mouth? Yes. The teeth? Yes, yes the okay. head. And so when um, there was a David Lynch exhibition in Brisbane um, called Between Shut Two up. Worlds, um, you know, with that very obvious, fantastic title, um, this was used, or his head series were used very prominently as the advertising. Not this one, but I think it was head number one that was the main one. But yes, they were all on display. They're in book. They're on postcards. They're in my house and on the wall. Mm, and wow. there's been so many moments in this series that we haven't seen David Lynch's artwork, but I feel as though that he is recreating it um, in different ways. But yeah, in this one, like I absolutely screamed when I saw this. It was just uncanny. That it, it makes sense that it's there. It's a fantastic image to use in that situation. But yeah, very. I don't know, it's just one of those things of real life kind of jumping out from me at me from the, the screen, which I think makes sense in the way that Twin Peaks makes you feel and that the characters feel. Yeah, and also he designed the Truck U t-shirt that that alpha guy was wearing, which you can purchase online oh God, should you feel what? the need to. <laughs> <laughs> so what do you think is going on with Sarah Palmer? Is, she in, is, the, is the experiment inhabiting her? Is she channeling it? Is there some sort of way that the Laura who's been sent to Earth by the White Lodge has been found out by the Black Lodge and they've sent the experiment in the form. I mean, there's all sorts of different ways you could possibly read the situation. Or is she just, is this a doppelganger of Sarah Palmer? I don't know. It's There were a lot of thoughts I had swirling around after my initial reaction of, oh my God, this is fucking amazing. And yeah, I, it, it's the question of, is she being possessed by nefarious forces? Is there some kind of mysterious force that is protecting her or inhabiting her for some reason um has she just literally been consumed by her own grief and is someone feeding off that because i feel like there's probably if you were gonna go for a source an emotional source to feed off there is no one in that town more emotional than sarah palmer and there's no one in that town who has more bottomless you know oceans of grief for you to feed off yeah she's essentially a void i suppose you could say in Mm. a way she's had so much of her life stripped away by the evil that the men do that she's also she's she's almost like a a perfect vessel or something for the experiment should that be what's happening do you have ideas about what's going on here sarah 
I'm trying not to speculate only because we are we're so close to the end that I this is one where I just want to see what, what he does with it because it could be so many things. Yeah. And I I I don't like the idea that she's a doppelganger though, but and I do feel that like you were saying, Haley, that this is a woman that has been through so much. And this is the most kind of confident and commanding that we've seen Sarah Palmer in, in this whole of the return. You know, even when she's interacted with other people and she's been kind of surly and gruff, but in this she's really self-assured. And there's just something, not that she's a doppelganger, but if you were going to feed off that energy, that kind of inter- pain and suffering, that internal, you know, Garmin Bozier, like she's the perfect candidate for it. Mm, mm-hmm. And did it, either of you think that she have, was impersonating the, the animals she was watching on screen the first time we saw her? No, but that's a good point. I think there's definitely a link. Like there's mm. definitely like, I, 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 I think we know here how Sarah has endured for as long as she has, because in some way she has you know, the power of a predator inside mm. her and whatever it is, it's protecting her in a way in that she can just keep surviving and she can keep going, even yeah. though in a lot of ways she maybe probably doesn't want to. Yeah, mm. yeah. in a way it reminded me a bit of um, Doppelkoop in that she doesn't really need anything. She just wants to smoke. She wants to drink. She wants Bloody Mary. She doesn't seem to need yeah. sustenance. She doesn't. Yeah, but I don't think it's even a want. I think it's just a... You're just feeding everything to keep everything going at almost its barest minimum. Like she doesn't really, apart from, you know, Bloody Mary mix and maybe like some nuts or jerky, yes. she doesn't really eat. She yeah. just subsists. Yeah, in the same house. Yeah, it's. I can't wait to see what's going to happen. Um, and we find, we close on the roadhouse. Um, and there are two girls sitting in a booth. Um, the woman with short dark hair is Sophie, who's played by David Lynch's wife, Emily Stoffel. And Shane Lynch plays the girl, other girl, Megan. And we start we instantly opening on a conversation about the nut house. Ding, Audrey. Uh, is this Audrey? I don't Is this allusions to Audrey? The conversation takes some interesting turns. That's because you're hanging out at the nut house, says Sophie. I'm not. I'm getting high. You're getting high in there. Bullshit, I'm not. I'm high in my own room. I don't go go in for that nut place. Then uh, she says, have you seen Billy? No, not for a couple of days. And we get a bit of background on Billy and his difficult situation <laughs> seems to be coming from uh, an altercation possibly with some malevolent force. Um, I, it was so fucking scary. He was in the kitchen with me and my mum. I think my uncle was there. I'm not sure, which is, becomes a, a point she returns to. Um, and, of course, I, th- I think it's had a lot of us to thinking other times we've heard uncles mentioned, and there are plenty of times we've heard uncles mentioned. I looked out the window and saw Billy jumped over the fence, a six-foot fence. He lands in our backyard, comes running in like crazy. Um, he has this look in his eyes. He comes slamming through the back, stumbles into the kitchen. I start screaming. My mum starts screaming. There's blood coming out of his nose and mouth like a waterfall. And he goes and hangs his head in the sink. Blood starts gushing. He turns to look at it, looks at us and bolts out of the room again. And I didn't know what to do. I didn't know what the hell was going on with him. My mum and him had a thing. What's your mum's name again? Which seems like a really weird thing to say to your friend. Like, what is your mum's name And again? the fact that she paused for a really long time before answering was very suspicious and yeah. odd as well. I think it's a classic troll move mm. myself. Um, Tina. Then we get a music cue that says, pay attention to this line that you've just heard. Um, and then he just ran out again. Yeah, he was in our kitchen for maybe 10 seconds. It was real fast and crazy. Blood on the floor and some on the wall. I don't remember if my uncle was there. And then... Um, <clears throat> Then Sophie just kind of stares at her in this really kind of intriguing way that, again, I think it was meant to force our attention back onto that sentence we've just listened to. And then it's kind of like he was there and he wasn't there, a bit like Bowie in mm. Firewalk With Me. They're not there. Um, is it about the bunny? It kind of is, it kind of isn't. They both kind of coexist. Ladies and gentlemen, the Roadhouse is proud to present Lissy. And we get some country pop. We get, um, it's, not, it's not really a fae woman on stage. We get a woman rocking out. Yeah, although it was very bizarrely directed in that it seemed like far more than the other Roadhouse scenes, it was very obvious that this band was miming. Oh, yeah. Particularly with the singing, like really obvious. Yeah, there's lots of cutaways to the audience, Mm. (laughs) possibly to hide this. Um, And then the credits roll, we get a starring Kyle McLaughlin with scant Kyle again Mm -hmm. and in memory of David Bowie. What a way to go out. When I started crying. Mm, Can't blame you. So an interesting point I noted was that this could have gone um, instead of part 13. There was no 
across in part 13 we got scenes in vegas with anthony sinclair stuff we got the western stuff in western montana sorry montana um we got the stuff with doppelgoop we've got norma and ed and audrey scenes and none of these scenes are referred to at all in part 14 so they literally could have been switched i think and in fact they, they were accidentally in germany um i thought that was a really interesting way that we're seeing the way that these episodes are organized now mm. sorry parts are organized now yeah did anyone else have any impressions before we leap into theory fish Theory Fish is the section of the show where we rate, where I bring a theory or theories to our guest and Haley, and they rated either I caught a trout in my pajamas, fresh, uh, it, fish in the percolator, it stinks, or they can keep fishing with a green butt skunk lure. First of all, I'll start with a minnow. So, is the woman who swallowed the girl who swallowed the bug in 1956 Lois, from the story that Albert tells? Because this matches up timeline-wise, because this happened in the mid to late 70s. This instance. Because at the moment, a lot of people are thinking Sarah Palmer. Obviously, she's got all this power. She got it from that. But still, she would have been 11 then. Now, is, is she more channeling the experiment or is Lois the first person who became able to access this second world via the swallowing the strange bug creature? Mm. I feel like that image of the bug cockroachy frog creature crawling into the young girl's mouth is too, it's too instantly iconic. <laughs> And the fact that it anchors the end of that particular part means that we will revisit it at some time mm. again. Mm-hmm. I'm not quite sure how. Um, I don't know whether we'll have some kind of flashback to see the the, the the lowest first Blue Rose case and that's how it links up together. I was a little bit like when it was originally floated, that theory that, oh, it's Sarah Palmer, I wasn't that fussed yes, and I'm still remember. a little bit suspicious, but it does make more sense now given what we've seen with this episode. Do or, you, or at least it would link. Do you think Sarah is the girl? Well, I don't I don't want to. I okay. think it's a bit too easy, but it does, mm, mm-hmm. it does kind of link up now with what we've seen. It would be some kind of explanation for what we've seen. Maybe not the most satisfying one, but it is one. Mm. What, what's your take? Yeah, I think that I like the Sarah story more than the Lois one. I right. just think that even though we now know about Lois and we know the significance of Lois and, and the Blue Rose, that you're right, Haley, and that Sarah is a very easy connection, but Lois just seems a little bit too much of a tangent for, for the fact that you know this was a really influential seen within that episode and you know that audiences we keep thinking about it since mm, mm-hmm. okay so you're saying tra- um there's a fish in the percolator yes i okay. am yeah i'm more of a green butt skunk right okay well i'm, I'm i think it's fresh i think it's that was the birth story the origin story lois is the origin of the blue rose i think that kind of links that way but yeah i think it will require a bit of backtracking and um covering to actually tie it together so um, that uh, uh, minnow came courtesy of Twin Peaks Scotia. Thank you. Now the larger, chunkier theory fish. Oh. Cue the tune. The lodge inhabitants exist within the dreamscape of an unknown dreamer and are the creators of that individual's dreams slash nightmares. When the electrician fires up his device, he is literally sending pulses of dream energy to the forebrain of the dreamer. Cooper says, no one knows why we choose these particular pictures. Do you, do you remember when Cooper is explaining what dreams are in, in season yes. one? Yes. Acetyl calling neurons fire high voltage impulses to the forebrain, but no one knows why we choose these particular pictures. Um, so the lodge inhabitants are the answer to this question of the pictures. They determine what we see when we dream. During the meeting, rituals and odd sayings in the activities of the lodge inhabitants are shaping that energy into the dreams that we see as dreams. In the Twin Peaks world, we know the love is actually the dreamscape of, of, the, of the dreamer. Someone is dreaming and Bob and the arm and all the others are running amok, having a fine old time within this dreamscape. When we see close-ups of power lines and we hear the electric static and humming, this is the electric impulses being sent to the brain. Bob is bringing nightmares to the dreamers. The evolution of the arm is interesting because it is the physical representation of this theory. It is literally a brain and nerves with crackling electricity running up and down its form. It is a physical manifestation of the dreamscape itself. The black and white lodges are in constant state of conflict as they each struggle to dominate the dreamscape and ju- thus the dreamer. The black lodge feeds off Garmin Bosia, pain and suffering, produced by the nightmares Bob brings, but at the expense of the psychological stability of the dreamer. The white lodge fights to maintain the sanity. The flyman puts out fires by sending his own minions, such as Laura, to confront the black lodge entities, thus preventing a total psychological breakdown of the dreamer. The black and white lodges are, possibly, representative of the left and right hemispheres of the brain? Probably not, but what the heck? 
I think that Twin Peaks may be entirely a dream. I love the description of this. It's very eloquent, but I continue to fight against the idea that this episode absolutely implants in our brains that it's all a dream. That that the broader idea of that just does not sit well for me. I mean, we've had so much popular culture where that has kind of been the cop-out ending, and I don't think it would be a cop-out ending for Twin Peaks, but it I don't think there's enough to it for mm-hmm. it to be it. But I do – I love the components of the way that that theory is just being described. I just don't want that to be the overall ending. Right. Yeah. I can kind of accept the idea that maybe certain aspects of the Twin Peaks world are dreams or perhaps that there are levels of cognitive understanding at play within this world and there are dreamscapes and there are realityscapes and then there are different dimensions and that sort of thing. If the entire story that as we have seen it turns out to be a dream, I will be so mad, but it doesn't matter because I've been mad at every ending that Twin Peaks has pretty much rolled out thus far. And I'm definitely knowing my track record with David Lynch stuff. I'm not expecting to be satisfied by whatever ending Mm, the show comes up with. And it's all about the journey anyway. Even without being satisfied, it just doesn't seem like that, like that everything being a dream is what they would do. It just doesn't seem... It doesn't seem to be the point. Yeah, exactly. Mm. And it's too neat. It's Mm. too, you know, you think about things where it's all been a dream or they've all been dead instead of being on an island or, you know, that kind of thing. Like it's just you all when you watch that, you just kind of think, all right, well, that's just a really convenient way to tie everything up. But mm. like David Lynch and Mark Frost, they're not about convenience, nothing about this other than, you know, some elements. So, you know, Diane and Janie, that could be a little too convenient, but for the whole thing to come together like that, I, I understand the argument for it. Uh, but I just don't think that that can be the ultimate ending. And I think that the way dreams have been used in Twin Peaks in that so many characters take their dreams seriously and use their dreams in order to figure out what is happening within their own waking plane. You know, I think the importance of dreams in Twin Peaks can't be overstated, but yeah, if the entire thing was a dream, it would mean that the importance of dreams within the text becomes nullified and everything kind of collapses in on itself. And we're dream within a dream territory and, you know, I'm sure David Mm. Lynch has probably seen Inception, but I can't see that being an enormous influence on David Lynch. No, although he did seem to shoot his dream within a dream in Paris along with some of the key scenes from Inception, but uh, that could be a coincidence, I don't know. (laughs) Um, That that theory came courtesy of Talon184 on Reddit. I braved the depths and risked running into Russian spoilers to bring this to us. <laughs> thank you very much for listening all the way through to the end of TV Season 3 and thank you very much for being such an awesome guest, Sarah. <gasps> thank, thank you, Sarah. Loved your input as Yay. always. Thank you for having me. It's been mm-hmm. very exciting. Um, if people want to find you online? You can find me at Twitter, so at Swordplay, so S-Swordplay. Um, you can find me at Andy Ricky, and you can communicate with us via at TP Season 3 either on Facebook or on Twitter. Thank you very much for listening. Mm-hmm.